0: Father, we do thank you for all the wonderful songs of the faith that we've been able to sing together. It's so wonderful to sit and listen to the people of God sing your praises, and um, I ask your blessings now in the Word, and you help me to rightly divide it, God. that you would um, just draw us to yourself, and as we read in the Psalms earlier, you just give us a great love for your commandments and a desire to follow them. We give you the praise and the glory for it all because our hope is in Christ and not in our good deeds, but give us a desire because of the Christ that's in us. to Live out the word of God, the way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, <clears throat> kind of starting in verse 26, there's been a couple of weeks here since uh, Joel, just a real quick refresher. Of where we are. Um, if we're correct in dating Joel sometime around uh, just previous to the Babylonian captivity, even though Joel never names a sin in his writing, we can probably rightly assume that the same sins the other prophets have been talking about were still rampant. The, the sins of idolatry, um, sexual promiscuity, you name it. There was all kinds of, uh, you know, trying to worship God, sort of a syncretism of worshiping God and all these other false gods together. And so I'm assuming that probably those are the sins that Israel's being judged for here and probably countless others. But God has sent or is sending an army of locusts. And by the time we get to where we are now, this has come in Judgment. Maybe an army too. Maybe an army described as locusts or maybe locusts described as an army. I don't really know. It seems like there are times they're both being described. But either way, the point being that the judgment of God has come upon his people. But so too has a call to repentance. But With the Lord, repentance is always an option until it's not. Right? So, God in His graciousness and His love for His people not only issues a call for repentance, but He also makes promises of restoration. And that's kind of where we're getting to here in our text. And as we read here and from the New Testament, these promises are very much messianic. In other words, they have to do with the coming of Christ. I don't know that you can even deny that. I mean, there's no way, especially we read Acts chapter 2 again in Peter's sermon that we talked about the last time I was with you. He says, these are the days spoken of by the prophet Joel. Literally, this is what was uttered by Joel. So number one rule in Bible interpretation is if God's spirit has um, inspired one of the New Testament writers to say, this is what the Old Testament was talking about. You don't have to even look that up in the commentary, okay? Good to go right there. So this is what Joel was talking about, Peter says. And if we are correct, again, in placing Joel's prophecy somewhere prior to the Babylonian captivity, then obviously some of what Joel says in chapter 2 has to do with the physical restoration that he is bringing after the captivity is over. In other words, they're coming back to Jerusalem. Because obviously, if you go back to chapter one, everything that God destroyed in chapter two, he's restoring everything. The crops to the the drought. Everything is being restored. But then in verse 26 and 27, there seems to be a shift towards something very permanent and lasting. In other words, if you're kind of wondering, reading into chapter two all the way to get to verse 26, what is he? It, so he's just going to bring them back to the land that he took them from and then give them everything back that he's destroyed with the locusts and the armies or the armies of locusts. But then you get to verse 26 and it seems like maybe there's something a little more permanent and lasting coming down the way. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrous with, wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. And here's another rule of interpretation. If something is repeated, it's probably pretty important. So it turns around right in the very next verse. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there's none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So I really start thinking that maybe all of chapter 2, at least beginning in verse 18, is really more about something way in the future from Joel's day. And way permanent. So in other words. If you go all the way back to verse 18. I don't want to read all that. But you you know, do read it. But the time where he starts calling for repentance. And he starts announcing. Um, he's removing these. Judgments. He's calling his people to rend their hearts. And not their garments. It seems like God is starting to. Move the focus towards something. Way down the line. So if that's true, then by the time we get to 28, the afterward could refer and probably does refer to after the death of the Messiah. So from verse 18 to 27, he's looking forward to this day where the people of God will never be put to shame again. The day of the Lord, the day is coming when Jesus will come. And of course, we know that often the the last days, the latter days, the end times, begin with the coming of Christ. Then beginning in verse 28, and after this, or afterward, meaning after the Messiah, and after his death, and resurrection. We'll talk more next time about all the signs and wonders that accompany it. But I think this is even more obvious if you're able to study this through some. And in verse 23, where it says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your, my ESV says, your vindication, and has poured down your abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. I don't think any of our English translations show this, but there's a lot of historical evidence that a a better translation for the early reign for your vindication is possibly he has given you a teacher of righteousness. There's a lot of Jewish writing and there's a lot of writing in the Puritans and all through church history that suggests this is what Joel had in mind. In other words, it would read, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you a teacher of righteousness. And he has poured down for you the abundant rain and early and latter rain as he has before. So that would make sense because the pouring down of the rain, the early and the latter rain have to do with gospel blessings showered down upon God's people. So, yeah, it's a picture of the early spring rains and late fall rains that are fixing the crops and causing them to grow and bring abundance. But there's a lot of teaching that suggests that God was bringing one to earth one day for his people that will bring blessing, gospel blessings, which the Bible often describes like rain. For example, in Isaiah chapter 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and the bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out of my mouth it shall not return empty, but it will accomplish what I sent it to do and shall, shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There's another place where Moses, being a forerunner of Christ or being a, one who foreshadows Christ as a great teacher, in his psalm, That's recorded first in Deuteronomy 32. He says, Give ear, O heavens, I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. A very clear messianic passage in Hosea 6. A clear allusion to the Messiah. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day he will rise up, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Psalm 72, a messianic psalm. May he be like rain that falls on the moan grass, like showers that water the earth. So you see, possibly, very possibly, in verse 18, getting 28, is a picture of the coming Messiah, this righteous teacher, the one the Lord is sending to shower down on his people so it's not just the crops that are going to be healed. There is a coming blessing and showers, the the early and the latter showers that will never cease and his people will never be ashamed again. Why? Because this teacher of righteousness is coming and it will never be the same after that. The gospel era in which God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And we pick back up in verse 28. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons, daughters, old, young, even servants. Meaning the gospel would be for all kinds of people. From all over the earth. Now this blessing at first, of course, in Joel's day and his prophecy was to the Israelites. No doubt. This made sense to them, your sons, your daughters. Remember an allusion back to Moses' day when the Spirit poured out on many there and they prophesied and Moses said, I long for a day when all of God's children will have this spirit of prophecy. So God says here, after these days of this Messiah, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters, old, you know, there'll be none left. All kinds of people on all the earth. Now, I point that out because some people like to use the word all and say all always means all, every single person. And it can't always mean that. If it did, this would make no sense. If you say every person that's ever lived, God poured his spirit out on them, that would not make sense. But he says all flesh. And again, I think he means all kinds of people everywhere because he goes ahead and points that out. Young, old, men, women, servants, non-servants. And of course, we go to the New Testament and we find out, oh, he even meant Gentiles too. Everybody, all kinds of people from everywhere. But not all, every individual, but he goes ahead and points out clearly the ones that will have the spirit poured out on them are all who, who call in the name of the Lord. And who are the ones who call on the name of the Lord? Those on whom the Lord calls. There's always that precedent. Just a little fun fact to point out there. But I hope you can see why many would look at the book of Joel, and I mentioned this early on, and they see it as sort of a compendium. It's just three little chapters, but sort of a whole history of View a view of history of God's dealings with His people, and you can kind of see how maybe it could have been concise enough to have read the entire thing during worship services. Because a lot of people believe that was done in the, in the first century church. They'd take the Book of Joel and just read it, and it was a reminder of people to people, not just in Joel's day, but prior to Joel. Because all of the quotes he puts in from Deuteronomy and Hosea and Amos, he's bringing all this back to bear to the people. Don't forget. God's history has been about redeeming his people. It's been about covenant. The Promises and the curses of the covenant, all present in Joel. The blessings of repentance and restoration. The hope of rest and never again being judged because of sin. Because your sin will be judged in the Messiah. In the book of Joel, we see the fruition of God's plan to save a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation That God shed favor on one small group of people and made them a nation to demonstrate his particular salvific love for a people group known as the church, which is incredibly diverse and unique and spans the entire globe now and will endure for all eternity. I think that's what's summed up in this and my people will never again be ashamed. Beautiful imagery of the people of God Loved through the work of the Savior Christ. Years restored. Food aplenty. Satisfaction. I ask you, is there anything more satisfying than the thought of years restored? Or being full? I love this thought that in Christ there is no wasted years. There's no wasted actions. There are no wasted relationships. In Christ, there's no loss, only gain. Those in Joel's day could could and would look back and say, man, what a waste. We spent all this time toiling over the fields. We had all these vines and they were all looking so healthy. And then the locusts came and destroyed it. But then they could be reminded as they keep reading, oh, but it caused our hearts to be torn. And it caused us to turn to God from our idols. So all will be restored, meaning not necessarily everything will be put back as it was, but rather everything will be such that you won't be burdened by what was taken and what is missing. I think that's what restoration is all about. Restoration is God taking everything that was we saw was messed up, jacked up, and torn and broken. And he repairs it in such a way that you don't have to look back and regret. Oh, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. You, you see that God put all this together perfectly to put you where you are at this moment. It doesn't excuse sin. But if we don't see restoration in that way, I believe that's exactly what this language is all about. God saying, I, I destroyed everything to bring you to repentance. But now I'm going to restore everything. You won't even remember what it was like when I destroyed it. It will be so healed and so fixed. Things are different when you come to Christ. When you know Christ, it just changes your mindset about so many things. It helps you to understand, put things in perspective. I was talking to a guy about my age yesterday after a funeral. And he said to me, he said, you know, when my dad died, I was lost. I wasn't a Christian. It destroyed me. I didn't know how to handle it. He said, for a year, I was just wrecked. My dad was gone. Why did he have to die? Why is he gone? How does this make sense? But he said, after that, years down the road, God saved me. Then my mom died. He said, all made perfect sense. I didn't have to question why. I didn't have to wonder what happened to her. All at once he said, death was not so frightening anymore because I recognized that this was God's way of really healing people and really keeping his promises. There's so much truth in that statement in so many ways. When you come to know Christ, so many things make sense. So many things you used to struggle with and wonder about. Man, I'm telling you, in, in what we do for a living, every day I want somebody's leaving this earth. And I told this guy yesterday when I was talking to him about this, I said, you know, there is, a, there is a total difference in watching somebody who does not have the peace of the Lord die as opposed to watching somebody who does. I mean, it's not to say that the people of God aren't scared. We we've had, we've, known, we've known people... Even recently, that in the beginning they were scared. What's going to happen next? What, what's going to happen to me? How am I going to suffer? They were scared, but by the end, it's just like the peace of the Lord had taken over. They're ready. Almost like saying, I'm just bringing, I'm ready to go now. It's that kind of thing, and it's not just about death, but Christ restores in such a way. That all of life makes sense. It may take a little while for you to put all the pieces together. And some days we all have places. uh, We find ourselves in places where nothing makes sense. And everything's in chaos. Eventually God settles our hearts. and helps us to put things in perspective. And we can understand that all things really do work together for good to those who love Him. And are called according to his purpose. So has your heart been torn by the gospel truth that apart from Christ you have no hope? I think that's the whole point of all of these Old Testament prophets that we read. God grabbing hold of his people, and shaking them by judgment to say, there is no God but me. Why do you roam? Why do you dare bow down to any other? There is no other God except me. There is no hope still apart from Christ. You will never have true rest, true satisfaction until you know Christ. And until you know that Christ has purchased you with his life and death on the cross. It's like we sang about earlier. The entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of history, is to show God's work of salvation and glorification of the church as well as to demonstrate himself worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Even the things that don't make sense to us. There are a lot of things that don't make sense. But there are a lot of things that we have to stop and as the people of God we rest and say, I mean, I'd have to imagine there are many in Joel's day who who made it through this, who were safely who did call on the name of the Lord and were saved, but they had others that weren't, and they couldn't make sense of, why did did God allow this to happen? Why did he allow that to happen? All through the scripture, there are circumstances like that. We know that the judgment of sin is okay, that God's got a right to do that, but until it comes home and we're watching it, it's hard, it's then it's hard to grasp, but God is able to calm our spirits and say, hey, all these things are for my purpose, This world and this life can be very, very unsatisfying. You can gain and earn and succeed. And in a matter of seconds, you can be drowning in loss and failure and emptiness. Worse yet, you can gain and earn and succeed in this world and then still not lose it, but still be empty and unsatisfied, longing for that which only Christ can give. Ultimately, he gives it in eternity but we get to enjoy it and measure now. It's that understand, it's that part of eternity that God puts in, has put in our hearts that keeps us going. That now, not yet part of our salvation. Man, I know I'm redeemed, I have abundant life, but one day it's going to be all made right. One day it's going to be complete. And I'll have to struggle. Scriptures are clear, through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of heaven. But one day it will all be made right. That, I believe, is the hope, not just Joel, but the entire Bible. That's the gospel hope. That's the showering of the gospel rain that God promises to pour out on us through this teacher of righteousness named Jesus the Christ. I pray that you have that and you know it. If you don't, I trust that God will give you a desire to know it. You'll come to repentance, you'll be saved baptize and follow him. Join us in this incredible adventure of just knowing God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask your blessings on your word. God, I pray that it would um, continue to just um, resonate in our hearts and minds. Lord, that you would help us to remember that we belong to you. And because we belong to you, we are heirs of righteousness. Not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ. And one day, all things will be made right. And one day, we'll know, not in part, but in full. And we'll be in a place where there is no more parting and no more broken relationships, no more sorrow, no more sickness. You'll wipe all tears away. Until then, we can live with an eye toward that. We read every week about different people across the world who suffer the ultimate price for their faith. We haven't suffered that, but there's a lot of suffering. None of it should be taken lightly, but God, I pray that you'd help us as we know you that we can see a purpose in everything and bless those and call those right now who aren't saved to yourself. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.